Hi, everyone. It's Jivana. I just want to come on for a moment and thank our sponsor, Offering Tree. They're an all-in-one, easy-to-use, community-backed business that saves you time, energy, and money as a yoga teacher. Offering Tree allows you to create a website in less than 30 minutes. Plus, you get a discount through Accessible Yoga. Just go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to get your discount today. Okay, here's our episode. Welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast. I'm your host, Anjali Rao. This podcast explores the connections between the teachings of yoga for self and collective transformation. We dive into how spirituality and philosophy can ignite social change. I share conversations with folks who are on the front lines of justice and liberatory movements, thought leaders and change makers, disruptors and healers. Hello and welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast. I'm your host, Anjali Rao. And today we will be delving into this really interesting conversation on liminality, liminality in liberatory movements. Liminality is a term used to describe the process of transitioning across boundaries and borders and has been an integral area of study of scholars exploring the process of social change. It's a space of ambiguity, sort of in between, coming from the Latin word threshold. It is literally the threshold separating one space, be it physical, emotional, social, from one another. It can mean many things from a space like a waiting room or rituals that can help us transition from one part of our day, of our life, of the face in society to another. And to have this conversation, we have, I think, one of the most uh, important voices in yoga, uh, Sean Moore. And we're going to talk about liminality in liberatory movements. What does this mean? How is this important in our world? And how can we practice yoga during the spaces of liminality? How can we manifest this in our own lives? Welcome, Sean, and I cannot wait to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. You see, I'm over here blushing. I'm like, thank you for all of the kind words. Um, I'm super excited for this conversation as well. It's a topic and area I love to explore. And so I, I just know that this is going to be a great conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So just for the listeners, an introduction to uh, Sean and, and his work. Residing at the intersection of leadership and mindfulness, Sean creates sacred spaces for stillness and self-inquiry to help change makers align their strengths, intention, and impact. Through his integrative approach, he holds transformative containers with meditation, sound healing, yoga nidra, and coaching. Sean has worked in higher education and student affairs for over 10 years specializing in leadership development, training program design, and workshop facilitation. 
and he transitioned out of his role as Associate Dean of Student Life and Leadership at Morehouse College in the fall of 2021 to focus more on mindfulness and stillness-based training programs and workshops. And he does this all through a focused Buddhist lens and 17 years of personal practice. In addition to holding community space through classes, he provides training in leadership and strengths-based development, workshops in mindfulness and sound healing, and also hosts a podcast called the Mindful Rebel Podcast that creates a platform to continually explore this unique intersection of leadership and mindfulness. I think that is a really important and interesting conversation. And I hope we can talk a little bit about that today as well, Sean. Welcome to the podcast again. And can you share your personal journey into these transformative practices? What got you here? Yeah, I, uh, this is an interesting, I always say like a superhero origin story. Uh, I always say this when I talk to folks and ask them about their origin stories. Um, for me, my entry point into a lot of this work was actually through um, through Buddhism, right? Um, I grew up black queer kid growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, and you know I always was a bookworm. I'm 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 a self proclaimed nerd. Um, I love to read and I love to learn. And in one of my um, English classes, I want to say probably eleventh grade, there was a book that was offered to us on a, on our reading list, and it was Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And that was the book that really sort of kicked off my my sort of spiritual journey. You know, back then, like, I think it was a different time. Meditation wasn't the cool thing uh, as it is now. Um, And, you know, there was something that gripped me in that story of someone figuring out the world for themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Understanding. And for those that might not be familiar with the book Siddhartha, it's the fictional retelling of the story of the Buddha. And it talks about how he sort of felt the need to leave his posh life that he had and sort of figure it out. And he went and lived with the ascetics for a period of time, went and tried a lot of different things and found the path that made most sense for him. And for me, as someone who grew up and didn't see a lot of themselves in a lot of spaces, there was something motivational about that, that like, it's okay to strike out in a way that honors what you need, even if you don't see it happening in the world. And so there was something about that that immediately sort of grabbed me in my heart and connected me there. So, you know, that's a a young 11th grader reading that book, having this sort of profound moment, but then also sitting with this, like, I mean, I grew up Christian, like, you know, I'm like, well, what do I do with this? So for me, it was something that I just explored on my own for a very long time through the rest of high school into college. And then I would fast forward into my adult life. Um, I took that a lot serious and I wanted to connect with community and sort of leaned into um, the work a little bit more intentionally. And so, you know, that meant taking my uh, refuge vows in Buddhism and then also sort of having this parallel track with the work that I do. So from a career perspective, a lot of my work has been in higher ed and really that's focused on like personal development. Uh, I did a lot of work helping students grow their leadership capacities and having this sort of parallel track with teaching meditation, teaching yoga, and and at a really interesting point, really feeling like, does do these things make sense together, right? I was really like, I'm wearing a lot of hats, right? Like, I'm like, does this make sense? But there was a point in which I kind of figured out the connective tissue. And this is sort of how 
it gave me courage to sort of step into this world probably full time, right? That I realized that the space that I create for students and colleges, you know, I've worked at a lot of different institutions here in the US, um, and the space that I create for my students in a meditation class, a sound bath class, a yoga nidra class, they're all space for personal transformation. They're all space to help people explore who they are in a, in a safe way, right? And when I realized that there was similarity there, I realized I'm like, you know, maybe I'm gonna lean into this a little bit more. And also the pandemic played a really major role in that, right? Taking the time, and I think it's a perfect sort of connection when we talk about like liminality and liminal spaces, the pandemic really served as that for me, that it forced me to slow down as somebody that struggles with grind culture, um, somebody that struggles with um, tying their work to their worth, the pandemic put a immediate pause and made me rethink work. And in that slowing down, I'm like, I am tired. I'm exhausted. I'm holding space for other people to get rest and really connect. And am I as connected as I feel like I should be? And that's sort of, pushed me into the direction of saying, maybe it's time for me to look at work that is a little bit more regenerative as well. And from there, back in uh, October 2021, I, I took the step away from higher education to lean into this work full time. Um, and that really just created the space for me. I know I'm a space holder. I know I'm, you know, before I had language for a lot of this, you know, I would always say like, my, my job is really to help change makers do the things that they do. Uh, and when I realized that the practices that we hold, meditation, yoga, fill in the blank with any of these practices from um, various wisdom traditions, that they're really about creating personal transformation, right? Transforming the person so that they can move out and transform the world. And that gave me the courage to sort of lean into that because I'm like, this is what I do. I don't have to do this in the four walls of a college. I can do this with the work that I'm doing here. And so that created space for me to lean into that in a much more intentional way. Um, and that sort of takes me up to where I am now, um, leaning into um, providing those sort of opportunities for folks uh, to do that reflection, to create that mirror for folks to really start to see themselves in a more intentional way. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up uh, Siddhartha because Siddhartha is one of my favorite books and uh, about from Herman Hesse. And it's interesting because in that he just, he actually talked, he actually addresses liminality because Siddhartha is actually a contemporary of the Buddha and he is exploring. He's like figuring out, is this my thing or is this my thing? And so that exploration of different paths uh, is liminality in so many ways. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And um Let's let's go back to that. Let's go back to uh, you know what you said about the connective tissue between what you were doing and so-called spiritual practices because I think there's always a gap in people's minds like what is the connection? What is the connection between spiritual work and social change? You know, and I, you addressed that more, but where does liminality come into this? Yeah, what I would say to that is I think that our practices create holding spaces for us to connect deeper to the work that we're doing, the social change work, right? That, you know, when I think about and and, and I'll say this, this is a, a something that I sat with 
when during the pandemic, when, you know, there was so much happening around the racial reckoning that was happening in the country, the, the lives being lost and folks on the front lines protesting, you know, I had a, a, a real interesting moment with myself where I was like, what, am, what can I do? Like, I felt totally helpless. I felt, um, I think helpless is the best way to the sort of phrase that I felt helpless. I'm like, cause that's not my thing. Right. But also realizing that in liberatory work or in movement work, we all have different roles to play. And it was one of the ways in which I realized that my role is to help recharge the folks that are out there. Right. And, and I think that that becomes really important that when we're on the front lines or when we're connecting or when we're seeking change in the world, that are we creating spaces that are particular for folks on the front line to come back, to recharge, to pour back into themselves, to reflect on the work that they're doing, to notice whether the work is moving in the direction in which they see. And I think sometimes that's the piece that's missing. And I know a lot of folks who are in the activist space or um, are in movement work that don't always take the time to slow down, right? Or they burn themselves out and they sort of lose themselves in the process. And so for me, I was like, the best thing I can do is create those spaces. So, you know, I was offering particular classes free for folks that were, you know, out there doing the work and providing those sort of containers uh, for folks to, to connect in that way. And so for me, I feel like it's really important for us to, one, if you're a space holder, to create those spaces, if that's in your, I always joke and say, if that's in your ministry, right? Like if that's in what you do, create those spaces and containers um, and ensure that they are safe for folks that are uh, in that work. But then also, if you are on the front lines and that's how you show up in the work, are you taking time to reconnect with yourself? Are you taking time to sort of turn back inward, reconnect to refuel, right? In a, in a way in which you can approach the work more fully the next time you step out in whatever capacity. Mm. I'm just taking a moment to take it in because I I'm like nodding my head very vigorously at what you're saying because th th this is the work that I personally feel called to do and um yeah to really hold space for frontline activists and movement uh people in the movements in various various movements so I so appreciate what you do and I'm so glad we're having this conversation um what would you think in the dominant culture what are some of the obstacles that dominant culture sort of puts in front of folks when in spaces or when in transitory phases? Because right now, we people want to know, what is it that I can do? And they want to know, but there are so many things that we don't know. You know, and I think in my personal work, I always talk about how it is okay to not know and to be in that space of ambiguity and to really, you know, introspect and self-reflect and all of that. What is your opinion? Where do you think, how can people show up in the not knowing? Yeah, one of the things I'll say is when we think about what dominant culture does is it it puts a premium on immediacy, right? It puts a premium on immediacy. When we think about, and I say this as someone who actively participates on social media and loves to participate, I love memes, I love funny stuff, all of that great things. And I love the connective ability that social media provides for us, right? There's a lot of good that have, that social media can, can provide for us, right? If we're utilizing it with the right intention. But when we sort of 
flip the script on that, we also realize that social media only shows us the end product, right? And if we thought we think about liminal spaces and we think about liminality, right? We're moving from what something was to what something can become. And with social media, we only typically see what it became, right? We don't ne- we don't necessarily see that gray area in, in the middle. And so sometimes I think that social media, because of its importance, can close out the importance of what that middle space is. We think that we need to already arrive at the answers. When in reality, there's a lot of introspective work that needs to happen before we get to whatever the outcome is. And I think that if we sort of understand that, what we're seeing online is quite often the finished product, right? And understanding there was a lot of steps for us to get there. We can't circumvent the process. We have to sort of lean into the process. And I always like to say leaning into the discomfort. You know, as you mentioned, like our liminal spaces are are filled with ambiguity. And when I think about liminal spaces, they're the way that we arrive to change, right? And when we think about movement workers and folks that are sort of on the front lines, their goal is to see change happen in the world. But before we get to that change and that outcome, we have to sort of sit with the emotions that come up around that, with the not knowing that comes up around that, with the the humility that comes out of that space, and also the grief that comes from that, right? Because there's also a grieving period in liminal spaces where something ended. And I love the language uh, in Buddhist philosophy when they talk about the bardo, right? And in, in the bardo, we look at that as something dies for something to be reborn, right? And that's another way for us to look at the liminal space, right? That something has to end before something new can begin. And sometimes we just want the, the new thing to begin, but we have to understand that something ends first and really sitting with that and being okay with a way of life might end, a way of being might end, a way of existing in the world, a system might end that we might benefit from. But at the end of the day, if something new comes out of that, and that is for the betterment of everyone, that's something we have to sit with, right? And so for me, I think about that, that dominant culture sometimes just lets us arrive too quickly at the end goal or what we think it should be without really honoring the process of getting there, that that middle ground, that space of discomfort. But in that, in reality, there's a lot of power and possibility that's available to us. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, And I really want to go back to what you mentioned about the grief that comes with with being in the liminal space, because that is not addressed enough or it's not given as much importance. The uh, the. People always, you know, we, we, all of us, including myself, we want to see, uh, like you said, change immediately. Like you, we are, we want to see conversations happening about some really complex issues, like immediately, and or react to what is happening in the news cycle, like immediately. And if you don't do that for whatever reason, then you're judged, or you're like maybe they're not responding enough, maybe they're not doing a certain way. And for folks who are leaning into pausing and really digesting and metabolizing. I think it is important. And these practices of introspection can, um, and the space holding uh, with the sensitivity uh, to the movements, I think it's really key. And the work that uh, work that is needed is, like you said, different for different folks. How would you, uh, 
how would you leverage your practice? And I know I know the answer to that for, for my personal way, but how, how can we as teachers, as space holders, shape a, an experience so we can get more comfortable with discomfort? Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful question. And what I would say to that is, and this has been something that I've sort of integrated in my teachings a lot more, is just a reminder that our practice, well, two things. One, that our practices are a microcosm of how we show up in the world, right? And I know we hear that quite often, like with yoga, like what you do on your mat is sort of how you show up in the world, right? In meditation, the things that come up for you on your in your mat or on your cushion or wherever you're sitting or wherever you're experiencing the practice is a reflection of how it shows up for you in the world. And so reminding people of that, right, that if you notice there's a lot of anxious energy in your practice or sitting in silence is uncomfortable for you in meditation, ask yourself those questions like, is that uncomfortable for me? When I get up off my cushion, am I able to sit with that? Do I deal with change really well in that sort of way off of my mat? Because quite often it's a reflection, right? And so reminding people that it is it is a nice way for us to look at that. And if we can start to manage it in a five, 10, 15, 20 minute meditation practice, something that we're doing on a daily basis or in a, you know, a 60 minute yoga class or whatever that looks like, if we can start to work on it in those spaces, then it's almost like we're building the muscle to work with that in other places. And so for me, it's always thinking, and I, I, for me, it's something that I think about for myself, right? When I come to my practice, I know instances where I feel like my attention is spread too thin because I'm having a difficulty in focusing on the practice at hand or I'm itching and reaching for my phone. So then I start to ask myself, like, what's going on with my attention on a larger scale? Am I split too many different directions? Is it hard for me to sort of just be present with myself? And if I start to ask myself those questions, typically I'm able to find a space to work with that in a much more gentle way. And then that's probably the that sort of moves into my second point is like being gentle with ourselves in the process. I think too often we are, our practices become another space in which we inflict harm on ourselves. And I always think about like ahimsa, right? Like non-harming, like we do that to ourselves in practices, even for something as simple as like, Hey, I'm doing a yoga. I'm in a yoga class and I'm going to, you know, injure myself and overextend because I don't want to use a block and I'm not taking help. Right. Well, do you not take help in life? Right. Like in other places, does that reflect other spaces? And so really being gentle with ourselves in our practice as an exercise to be gentle with ourselves in other places, uh, you know, as we sort of move in that way. I I love that. And I want to reiterate what you said, um, our practice on the mat is a microcosm of how, or could be a reflection of how we move off the mat and to draw the connection as teachers, as space holders, and even as practitioners, even if we pay attention to how we are on our mat or our cushion, and then join those dots and to see how we are moving in our relationships. What we're actually doing is, and I'm sure you will have a, uh, you know, something to add to this is we are understanding our samskaras, our neuromuscular thought habit body patterns and uh, understanding it, unraveling it, maybe strengthening it or maybe knowing how we can um, offset some of the samskaras which are not uh, needed in our lives. So is is that what we are doing, you think? 
Absolutely. And what I'll say when we talk about samskaras or we talk about habits or patterns, again, and I think this goes back to, I feel like it's the underlying current of our conversation is like, there has to be a patience there, right? Like we have to be able to sit with that and realize like, you're not breaking a pattern or habit in two or three, you know, practices, right? You're not, that. that's just not how habit, that's not how our brain is wired, right? So being comfortable with the fact that, yes, I have awareness that this is something I need to work on and noticing that that is something that you can address and work towards. Because again, it's, it's there is this need sometimes, and I think it's a great sort of connection back to this idea of what dominant culture sort of inflicts on us, but there's a need for immediacy. There's this need for instant gratification. And when we feel like, well, it's not working, or I tried to work on that and it still doesn't feel like it's I'm releasing that, or it doesn't feel like it's getting any getting any better, right? It's that, you know, it's, well, are we giving it time? Again, thinking about the liminal space and moving from something that was to what we want it to be or we see it being, like, are we giving it time to change, to, to, to release that, that pattern, to either, to your point, strengthen it or release it or surrender to it? There's, there's a lot that happens that we just have to give ourselves space and be gentle with that process. I love that. Hi, everyone. I just want to pop in here really quick and remind you about our sponsor, Offering Tree. As yoga teachers, we are our own business managers, website designers, and producers. It's a lot. And Offering Tree offers an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to succeed while we're doing all the things. And I'd just like to say that through this partnership with the Love of Yoga podcast, Offering Tree has shown that it's committed to supporting accessibility and equity in the yoga world. Offering Tree is a public benefit corporation and they're driven by a mission of wellness accessibility, which we share with them at Accessible Yoga. As an Offering Tree user, you'll get uh, to join a supportive educational community and you'll also get free webinars with top experts in wellness and entrepreneurship. And of course you get a discount. So go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to learn more and to get your discount. Okay, let's go back to the episode. Also, um, how do you think we can reimagine not knowing, Sean? Because it's you know we are we are asked to know things. We are asked to be experts, and we are uh, you know that's the that's the glorification that comes from a capitalistic framework, right? So there is no glamour in not knowing. There is no it's not sexy, <laughs> you know, so how how would we reimagine this? How can we reframe not knowing ambiguity, liminality? Yeah, there's a few ways. There's a few things that came up immediately when you said that. And one, I would say. Um, refocus the purpose of your work, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't know something, does it benefit? Like, can we take ego out? And does it benefit you maybe embellishing that you do know or does it benefit like, hey, we need to bring in somebody else or or, hey, there's space for, for someone to learn more or to have or outsource a different sort of response or person or expert in that way. Um, sometimes we feel like we need to have all the answers and it's OK. And I, and I would say even as somebody that holds space, that was something I had to, to to work through. Right. When someone would come to you after a class and ask particular questions and clearly they're seeking something, it's okay to be like, that's a really good question. I actually don't know. Um, but 
let me refer you to somebody or let me connect you with somebody or I know somebody that might be able to help you pull on that thread a little bit more intentionally or to move down that journey a little bit more. But then I also look at that as an opportunity for possibility, right? Again, when we think about liminal spaces, yes, there's ambiguity. Yes, there's discomfort, but there's also possibility. If we look at that gap as an opportunity, it was like, huh, I could learn something new here. Like, I might not have this answer right now, but give me a second. Let me learn something new. And I like to share this story because this is actually how I, I always joke. And, and I, we know it's all yoga, right? It's all it's all connected. But I always joke and say, like, I came into yoga backwards, right? That sort of my first entry point was really around meditation. And I really had no interest in becoming like a full yoga teacher. Like, I'm like, there's some amazing yoga teachers out there. They got it. They're doing they're doing the work out there. I have no I just want to help people meditate. Um, and then sound became another modality. But there was one instance that I, I encountered where I was facilitating a sound bath and there was a, a person of an of a older age that joined the sound bath. And um, mind you, I'm, I'm just facilitating sound and a lot of in a lot of sound bath practices. There aren't or trainings and apprenticeship. There's not a lot of detail that goes into like how to work with the physical body. So that was a limitation for me very early on. And there was an older woman that came in and she pulled up a chair in the middle. Mind you, you know, when we think about sound baths, people are like relaxing on the floor. They got pillows and everything. She pulls up a chair in the middle of the floor. And, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, let me go speak to her and say, hey, you know, we're on the floor today. And I went and I was like, hey, um, you know, welcome to the sound bath. And she was like, thank you, baby, but I'm not getting on this floor. And that was like a real pivotal moment for me because that was at a point very early on in my facilitation that I didn't have the skill and language to help people in different bodies. And for me, I looked at that as a possibility. I said, okay, I know the population I want to work with. And I know that they're going to come with particular elements in their body and they'll need better direction. Everybody's not going to be able to, to, lay on the floor. Right. And so for me, that was, that was a very vulnerable moment and it was a very uh, uncomfortable moment. It was a, it was a vulnerable moment, but I looked at that as a moment of possibility. So, okay, let me now look into other ways in which I can better those skills so that now when I have more people in my space that need that assistance, that I'm able to articulate that. And so I think looking at those areas as growth points or points of possibility can be really helpful for us and just getting out of your own way, because, again, you know, ego will creep in and you'll be like, oh, I feel like I should have all the answers, but it's OK. It's OK. It's, it's possibility. Okay. It's OK. <laughs> I love that. I love I love what you said about reimagining, not knowing as leaning into possibilities uh, and potential for new beginnings and growth. Um, so thank you for sharing that. What are some of your non-negotiables? I like to ask this for all, of all my guests. What are some of your non-negotiables or um, if you want to call it rituals, you want to call it practices for building capacity, for being in this space of either not knowing or holding space for the liminality? Yeah, um, I would say if you asked me this question maybe a year ago, I would probably have given you a different answer. But in the last year, silence has been that. For me, um, I feel like the world is so busy. The world is so loud. Um, it's easy for us to be tapped into so many other things. And I'm the kind of person I'm like moving from I wake up in the morning, the news is on. I get in the car, I'm listening to music. I go to the gym, there's a podcast on. 
logging on to Zoom meetings, like there's always a narrative going, there's always a soundscape going that for me, the way in which I work with that innate discomfort of a liminal space is really sitting with silence, right? Like not feeling that anything else is needed, but just to come down, come and sit, just to be present with yourself without any other because I mean, our minds are busy as it is, right? There's a lot of other things going on up there. So do I need anything else to sort of uh, add to that? And so silence, even for my own personal practice, as somebody that has bounced between a lot of different uh, experiences, a lot of different types and lineages of meditation practices, like I think the the go my go-to has really been just sitting in silence. It's just like, I'm setting a timer. I'm just going to sit and I'm just going to be present. Whether I get antsy and I start looking at the phone or I move around, I take note of all of that. But just sitting in silence and just really being present with myself, um, taking note of like what's happening, like, hmm, you know, my body, I'm actually tired today or hmm, I feel pretty energetic. What things do I need to work on or creating space even for creative ideas to sort of surface? Right. There's a lot of opportunities, I would say, in the last last year or so that like I've had space for things to come and rise to the surface that I'm like, huh. That's been something I've been sort of sitting with or gestating for a little bit of time. And now I've had some space for it to move to the surface. And there's something there for me to, there's a thread there for me to pull on and sort of explore a little bit uh, more intentionally. So I would say silence has really been the the big thing for me, um, a way for me to really make that connection. And then I think the other piece for me, and it's also, I, you know, I mentioned this, like I'm a nerd, but like I like to learn. And so creating spaces to learn, like, you know, in that silence, maybe before or after, finding a particular book and really taking time to trace back to like the roots of these practices, right? Like, and for me, that's really important to sort of honor and really keep at the forefront that like, yes, I see a book written by this person and it's probably the academic in me as well, where I'm like, let me look at your, your, your work cited or your resources and let what original text did this come from? Then let me go grab that book and then pull from that and read and make my own interpretations and explore and embrace it in that way. And so part of that is also really beneficial for me as well in that way. Mm, that's very juicy. And I, uh, <laughs> and I, I'm a big book nerd too. So I think we will have more to chat. Uh, yes. soon. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm, you know, for for those who are uncomfortable with silence, because, you know, silence is a, is a thing that is very hard for many, many people to come to. What are some of the beginning practices, do you think, for us to even sit with silence is, is the next step, actually, like you said, because if you were to look at the eight limbs, you know, the rest of the stuff comes first and being silence is toward the latter part of, of the eight limbs. So what, what do you think are some of the things that we can do to arrive there? Yeah, I think, um, and this is something I, I say in um, classes that I teach is sometimes we need to build like silent stamina. <laughs> um, and that means like building up our ability to get like, my suggestion is never like, hey, just take an hour out of your day and sit in silence. That I'm sure for a lot of folks would be terrible. For me, that's juicy. I'm like, yeah, an hour with that's silence. Fun. That's great. <laughs> but for a lot of folks, I know that that can be terrifying. So like, Maybe you do a guided meditation practice or you flow through yoga asana for 30, 45 minutes and then create space. Maybe there's a pocket of five minutes of silence or in between your meetings, between a Zoom call, take five minutes, 10 minutes and let that time slowly increase. 
to give yourself more comfortability with that. But building it around other habits, I think, is also is really important. and It's really helpful. But starting out small. And then allowing yourself to build that up can be really beneficial, right? And I know that there's times where I definitely backslide where I'm like, ooh, 10 minutes I can't do. Let me just, let's just do today. I got two minutes to just sort of sit in that and be present in that way. And so giving ourselves grace to also know that our connection to our practices and our connection to those pockets of silence that we connect to will look different day to day. And that's okay. Right. We sometimes want to keep everything at this particular standards. Like every day I practice for 30 minutes and it's like on paper, that's cool. That sounds good. But our capacity changes day to day. Um, And that's something like when we think about liminal spaces and liminality and change. Right. That that's something that we can like we are we are a different person minute to minute, day to day, month to month. And our needs change in that sort of change as well. And so being open and comfortable with that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, thank you so much. I'm sure uh, our listeners will really appreciate all these pointers. And before we close, anything else, Sean, that we can you know, uplift your work, anything you wanna share with our listeners, anything exciting in your upcoming projects? Uh, yeah, but only thing I'll, I'll say is, um, you know, there are some great workshops that are coming down the line. I'm actually leaning into this idea of liminality and change a little bit more. And there'll be a series coming out that'll help us sort of work through that more intentionally. Um, so I'll always tell folks, it's like, just hop on the mailing list. I send some stuff out. I send some free practices out and all of those kind of things. But um, for me, this is the work that I feel like is really important at the moment. I feel like at where we are from a social perspective, we have to become much more comfortable that I think the world is asking for a level of change right now. And what that means is we need to be more responsive, but in our responsiveness, we have to be comfortable with that discomfort. And so finding ways to help people, no matter what sector they're in, no matter you know whether you're you know holding space for other people, whether you're on the front lines, whether you're you know working in a company, that finding spaces to help people really settle in to connect to that power that's present in these liminal spaces so that they can go out and make the changes that they see that are needed in the world. And so, yeah, there'll be some great offerings coming out around that very soon. (laughs) Very exciting. And I I will definitely look out for those offerings as well. Um, And so much gratitude to you, Sean, for coming on this podcast and sharing so much wisdom and very practical. I would like to say practical wisdom. So I so appreciate your work and your words. And I cannot wait to continue to learn from you and uh, listen to whatever you have to share. And the feeling is mutual. Uh, I'm like, yeah, we're just, this, this is a great conversation. And um, yeah, we gotta, we gotta definitely keep this, this open. Uh, Cause yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited to learn more from you. And um, I'm just excited for what you've been able to do with this podcast and the work that you do. Um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you listeners for listening to this conversation with Sean Moore. Thank you for being here for this conversation. Please support our work at Accessible Yoga Association by becoming an ambassador or checking out our studio at accessibleyoga.org. 